This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. This is Green and Gold History. 50 plus years of stories, championships, and colorful characters. This is Ace Baseball. This is Green and Gold History. This episode of Green and Gold History is presented by New Era. New Era Cap is proud to be the official cap of your Oakland athletics. Next time you visit the Coliseum, be sure to drop by the New Era Cap stand and pick up your A's New Era Authentic Collection Cap. Remember, you can always visit us at NewEraCap.com to shop our latest selection, including our limited edition and exclusive drops. New Era Cap, the official on-field cap of Major League Baseball. Getting closer to the finish line on Memories with Boost, episode 16 with Steve Usinich, the A's longtime equipment manager who is retiring after 54 years with the organization going back to its inception in 1968. And Boost, when we last chatted, it was following the emotional loss to the Kansas City Royals. It's ironic that we visit with you as you sit at Kauffman Stadium uh, this week for the athletics. It's not exactly the best memories uh, for the A's. It, it began a, a stretch of uh, something we hadn't seen a whole lot of, which was the A's struggling with wins and struggling to try to find their identity and waiting for the next wave of players to get to the big leagues. Uh, what do you recall about how the A's, as they've often done, found a way, though may have taken a little bit longer to get themselves back into a the winning style of baseball? Well, I think our organization, our front office, has done a good job of spinning that around, making the trades the right time, uh, making them a year too soon rather than too late. So uh, we made some deals after that loss in Kansas City, which was heartbreaking, especially when we had the best record in baseball right up till July, and then we started leaking oil. We're kind of forced to make the Samarja trade and trade Suspettas in the, the John Lesher deal. But uh, um, they spun it around during the winter, said we're going to make some moves. Uh, Donaldson was traded. We picked up, uh, traded Samarjo away to the White Sox. We've still got Chris Bassett there. So overall, that trade came in on top. And it's tough to uh, look back and see Josh Donaldson being traded and being an MVP. But you have to give up something to get something. We thought we got a little bit more than we did. But uh, you could see guys coming, too. I remember seeing the workout. And it was Matt Olson and Chapman. Olson as being a uh, high school kid and Chapman being a kid from Cal State Fullerton. I'll never forget them working out at the Coliseum. There were just a few people there. And Eric Kubota saying, there's something about the way the, the, sound, the ball sounds coming off Chapman's bats. And fortunately, we were able to draft him, draft Olson. And uh, they have been productive for us since they've been called up, both gold glove winners, both winners. Uh, uh, each one of them had suffered setbacks and it bounced back from it pretty well. So um, I think that kind of laid the foundation, knowing the draft was coming. Those guys were a couple of years away. And uh, it was tough to swallow at first because we, we picked up Brett Lowry, who was a great prospect with Milwaukee, but they traded him to Toronto and he didn't he didn't play real well for us. So we traded him to the White Sox. So uh, the trades are made for various reasons and you, you always hope you get the better end of it. But uh, Billy has found is trade partners 
one equal in trades. You don't try to screw everybody like you do in a fantasy football league draft or something on trades. So a uh, foundation was set. We had to suffer from a, with a couple of years, but uh, we could see it coming. Interesting what you said about Kubota and his reaction to watching those workouts. First Olsen in 12 and then Chapman in 14, given all the kinds of workouts that he's been a part of a scouting director, maybe so many that you just happen to witness because those workouts took place before the A's were, were home. It, when you're looking for that next wave of players to, you know, to be the anchor, the guys that you're, that you're hoping can, can step in and really be uh, anchors for your ball club. What do you recall about these? Because you've seen it before that these guys were going to join that lineage of those type of players. I, I, you know, I don't know, Vinny. It's just uh, you sit there and you see them play. You watch them in the minor leagues at the level. Uh, if they get called up for a big league game in spring training, you pay a little more attention to them. Obviously, because they're high draft choices, you give them a little more rope, I think. Uh, and neither one of these guys needed the extra rope. Uh, that's kind of important. We see some guys now that are getting drafted higher than us, and we're still waiting for them. You never know what's going into some of these guys' minds. I mean, you try to do your homework, your background checks and everything. But uh, there was something about Chapman uh, just on the field. He just thought, God, if he just feels balls, if he could hit halfway decent, you know, he's going to be a great player and he's involved with that kind of guy. You touched on Brett uh, Lowry for the A's, who was the high-energy third baseman. And he was involved in a situation, you may recall, which really impacted baseball for the modern day fan. And that was at, you know, at Fenway Park when just a, a simple foul ball behind the plate in a situation where, A, the fans behind home plate at Fenway were are right on top of the action. And number two, at that time, there wasn't a lot of net protection for the fans that were just right behind home plate. And unfortunately, there was a foul ball that struck a young lady and then. And uh, it was a significant injury as she was taken out of the ballpark. And that began the conversation for fan safety or re-engaged that conversation around baseball that, you know, you go to hockey, hockey, hockey matches and hockey games and you see the netting all around to protect folks from flying pucks. And that really wasn't happening in baseball. How important was the, uh, the resolution after that unfortunate situation for baseball? You know, it's kind of scary. I'll never forget. Uh, they were looking for pieces of the bat. And some people from Boston uh, Police Department came down, and we didn't know the status of the fan. They said, said, it, said it was a murder investigation. I go, what? And I'll never forget, I was being in the clubhouse, and they were looking for the other parts. Well, they didn't know that the Red Sox had gathered the parts over there, and I don't think for anything other than just, just uh, getting them out of the way. When they said murder investigation, then the guy says, well, that's what we call everything anytime anybody gets hurt like that. And it was a, I breathed a sigh of relief then it wasn't a death. And very, very scary. Obviously, it's led to what we've got today in the nets and, and more protection for the fans. Back then, too, maple bats were exploding. Maple bats now are under control of Major League Baseball. Uh, you have to have a certain density to the bat. You can't have a thin handle and a big barrel, which is what our guys have grown up with, with aluminum bats. And so they, they try to get the weight off the bat and they take it off the handle and led to them breaking. So major league baseball, uh, in a lot of research and study with a wood company out of Wisconsin figured birch and maple bats had to be a certain density. And that's why you see a little spot just above the handle where they measure the density and the slope of the grain. So you've seen very few bats go into stands, obviously not now because of the netting, since uh, I say right after that or about that time, that was still happening then. 
uh, it was very, very scary, and you hate to see that happen. And we all breathe a sigh of relief that uh, she turned out okay. I mean, there were problems, but she lived fine. I know it's tough for, for Ace fans to, to hear a conversation about Marcus Simeon, especially with what he's doing right now with the Toronto Blue Jays. With all the years he played for the A's and was an MVP candidate in 2019 as a member of the Athletics. But of all the years you've seen players either come through the A system or come from a different organization and see a player transform himself from what looked like a guy that was struggling in the field and at the plate and a local kid, you know, from the Bay Area to become the player that he has on both sides of the baseball. Can you recall anybody else or what that list, how short it might be of players that accomplished what Marcus did? Marcus working with Ron Washington and then seeing all that come together and seeing him become the player he has become. Well, watching Marcus, you knew he had tools. He's very talented. Uh, friends of mine had coached him in high school. They raved about him and he had a big league mentality. Well, he got off to a bad start. And we and the talk was the White Sox were going to move him to center field. Well, I don't know if that was true, but he did have some problems with us like he had with the White Sox. Boom, here comes Ron Washington. And Ron starts working with him. And Marcus Simeon could have said, hey, you're a part-time coach, go your own way. But everybody knew Ron's uh, credibility and working with infielders. He had helped Eric Chavez tremendously. Uh, so uh, Marcus paid attention and went out and did the extra work day and day after day after day, whether it's just a little drill where he's on his knees and he's reacting with his glove and Ron's bouncing ball at him to his left or to his right or hitting fungos to him. Uh, so you have to give Marcus all the credit in the world to see what he's made himself. Unfortunately, he beat us the other day with a home run. Uh, you like to see him do well, but not necessarily against us. But I give him all the credit because he put in all the work and he's deserving of what he's getting. If you ask about other guys like that, I've seen guys that – Jose Canseco at one time was a better-than-average outfielder. Joe Rudy worked with him uh, in 1986, his rookie year, and Jose became an average, a better-than-average outfielder with the glove, with the arm, knowing where to throw, know how to position himself to throw, know how to charge the ball. But once Jose got the big contract, almost he just wanted a DH almost exclusively, it just hit. And so he fell out of favor with us as an outfielder, and he didn't put in the work. I think there's one guy that might surprise people that I'm so proud of, and I think he's turned his whole uh, career around, and he was there for the taking a few years ago, was Liam Hendricks. And the success he's enjoying now with the big contract with the White Sox, he, st he stood there and reinvented the game, his part of the game, had to go down the minor leagues in Nashville to be able to continue to be paid because he didn't have a guaranteed contract where he could walk away when we DFA'd him. And to see him come back and what he did for us last year, especially in the playoffs, game two and three against the White Sox, is is unfathomable. He just he performed. And it's funny, after he pitched those innings on the set, game two, I said, hey, take tomorrow off. He said, no, I'm in here tomorrow. And he had thrown a lot of pitches, but he knew that's what we had to have. So I'm I'm proud of both those guys, how they've turned their careers around. It's interesting you talk about Joe Rudy working with Jose Canseco. And remembering the early memories in one of our earlier episodes with Joe Rudy, as you discussed and reminded us, he worked with Joe DiMaggio, helping him become a, a, a great outfielder. You talk about really passing the baton. That is pretty impressive. 
That is, it goes right down the line. It was there was a thing like that. Leonard Coppett, late Leonard Coppett, in the New York Times and Palo Alto papers at one time did a history of when Chuck Tanner was managing us, and that was a year we were running wild, nineteen seventy six, and all those stolen bases. And he traced the lineage from Tanner to who he had played for, who he had worked with, all the way down to like nineteen twenty or something. And it is amazing how those things uh, can evolve and continue on. Yeah, I remember Leonard wrote a. a a, a book about managers and like the tree of managers and how they all, you know, how that moved from one phase to the other, you know, you've been with the club since day one, you know, 54 years, Vuce. And, uh, you know, Dave Cavill uh, came on board as uh, the new team president for the A's in the late uh, teens. And one thing that he wanted to do was celebrate 50 years of A's baseball and have a free game on the actual anniversary date, which was uh, April 18th of 1968 you fast forward that to the 2018 season and Lou was still with us and the guy that started that game I got a chance to be there for the ceremonial first pitch what were the memories like for you who's seen that come full circle well, I'd always had a good relationship with Lou Krause and, and he was a uh, here I was an impressionable 15 16 year old kid and Lou Krause was the best dresser on the team and you you hate to use the word playboy but uh, he was out there he was out in the, in the city and had a lot of friends. So he kind of, I don't say idolized him, but he kind of looked up to him and said, God, I hope I could be like that someday. But he came, uh, he was a, uh, a starting pitcher for us that day, gave up a couple home runs, obviously. He came back out for the 50th anniversary and was just amazed how he hadn't been in the stadium since the early 70s. And maybe he did an old-timers game in the 80s, I can't remember. But he... Uh, came out, was so happy to be there, thought it was a great honor to come back out 50 years later. Uh, he, he did state, state to me, he says, I can't believe I've lived 50 years since then. But uh, he's a guy that uh, get, became very successful right here in the Kansas City area, uh, businessman, uh, made a lot of money, was very popular. And I used to see him once in a while when uh, Tony La Russa and Renee Latchman were, uh, and Dave Duncan were all coaches and managers for the A's. We'd come back to Kansas City and Lou would come out. So, so when I saw him for the 50th, it wasn't the first time I'd seen him since way back in the early 70s, but it was a pleasure to see him, and he was a real competitor. Uh, I think I mentioned somewhere along the line that he's the one that probably could explode as well as anybody when he comes off the field to come into the dugout. And a couple of times he took his uh, bat to his wood locker and uh, chipped it up pretty good, but uh, he knew when Lou didn't have a good game to stay out of his way. <laughs> Boost all that you've seen and how the game has kind of transformed, not just, you know, uniforms and, and the style of play and the style of managing and just the way we talk so often now about the three true outcomes. 2019, uh, we joked about it then and even joke about it now, kind of the year of the home run. And people were talking about how the baseballs that year were like golf balls or like Pro B1s and guys were hitting them all over the place, over the fence from foul pole to foul pole, whether you were player known for home runs or a guy that wasn't it seemed like everybody once they step in the box was a home run hitter did it feel that way watching that boost I mean you've, you've seen the baseball I I know you're not a scientist and I know you can't necessarily break down the the circumference of the baseball and how it feels but you saw the reaction of how the game was being played that year what do you remember about the year of the home run I think that's a combination of things. I mean, you're never going to get Rawlings to admit that Major League Baseball or they've tweaked the, the, the manufacturer, the winding of the twine or whatever, the sewing of the seams. But there are always, they're always uh, factors to consider. I think that year the weather was 
better. It wasn't freezing. We didn't have the snow outs, a lot of rain outs at the beginning of the season. That contributes to it because you've watched home, more home runs get hit during the summer. So it was warmer there. That might have been right when we're peaking as far as people trying to lift the ball, trying to hit home runs. If you're going to try to hit home runs, you're going to hit more, but you're going to strike out more too. So I think it's a combination of all those factors. Uh, did it increase my ball budget? Not really, because uh, during batting practice, they didn't hit that many. They hit a few, but uh, that's where I lose most of our balls. But uh, uh, I think it was a combination of the factors of all those things. The uppers, uppercuts, not caring if you strike out, better weather earlier, and uh, less effective pitching. Two really good seasons back-to-back for the A's boost in uh, 18 and 19, winning 97 games and getting the postseason. Couldn't overtake the Astros, which meant the A's were stuck with a one-game playoff, one at, uh, on the road and one at home. I guess this thought about heartbreak inside the A's organization when it comes to the postseason, that really kind of reared its ugly head again in those two years. But, but what great years they were just to get to that situation and seeing this young uh, core believe that they should be in the postseason just couldn't quite – get it done in any of those play-in games, uh, that had to be frustrating. Well, I mean, it's just as frustrating as how many elimination games we won the years before against Minnesota, the Yankees twice, Detroit, Boston, uh, all those games, uh, the game fives we got eliminated on. So it was just like we tied the first four games, here comes game five, but it's a one-game playoff. Uh, very disappointing because we could have won any of those games were as good, if not better, than those teams. But you have to play well in that game. And if you don't, you lose, you go home. And that's what happened. Uh, I think our guys learned from it last year. And that was part of the drive to, even though there wasn't any one-game playoff last year, they they expanded the playoffs. But that was one of the reasons to uh, to play as well as we did and try to get the home field advantage in the, the best of three games. And we lose the first game. And it shows you how important the home field advantage was. The second game, we had 45,000. Oh, I'm sorry, there wasn't anybody there. But uh, – uh, but it was important to play at home and, and be comfortable. And we uh, played well against the White Sox. Unfortunately, we had to face a tough Houston team who still has a great, great lineup. But it was so important for us to have to be able to play at home and win the division and show Houston we were that good. Everything that you've seen, Boost, in our country in 54 years working for the athletics, I mean, uh, race riots in Detroit and the challenges of that 72 playoff and seeing a, a president of the United States resign at 74 and seeing player strikes in 81 and, and 94, and certainly the, uh, the awful uh, thoughts about 9-11 as we just passed the remembrance of 20 years of looking back on that day in 2001. But that, that day in March of 2020, which was just that, like any other day, and uh, the A's were getting ready to play the Dodgers. Uh, I think, it, you know, there was some rain in the Phoenix area. I think the game would have been rained out anyway, but what happened? What what can you almost take me through minute by minute? What was happening that day and what the A's were learning about basically how the sports world and the world in general stopped as we learned more and more about this thing known as the coronavirus? Well, going back just a few days or a couple of weeks before, uh, Nick Paparessa was our point person with the medical field about that. And he would tell us how to wash your hands, what to watch out for, what not to do, things about uh, uh, crowds and things. And then all of a sudden, uh, what happened with the NBA? And they canceled those games. And all of a sudden, baseball looked at themselves and said, hey, it's only spring training. Maybe we better back off. So we got rained out the day before. And uh, so we're at the at the ballpark that day. And there probably a chance, like you said, we might have got rained out. And they 
uh, Billy and David came down and said that we're canceling just like everybody else in baseball. Everybody can go home. They can do whatever. So they had a meeting. And they said, and they said, and he told myself because of my age and the secretary upstairs, Linda, to go on home right away. Well, I couldn't just walk out without knowing what was going on and what the players, what players were going to go home, who were going to hang around, where we're going to allow them to work out. So I'll never forget, Billy comes in and he dresses the whole team, coaches everybody. and says, we even told Vuce to go home. And David Forrest goes, no, Vuce is right there. I said, Billy, I got to know what's going on and, and be in touch with all these players. So some of the players packed up. Some decided to drive right away home. Uh, some decided I'm going to fly. Can I leave my car there? We lock it up at the stadium. No problem. Uh, a couple of guys hung around, came by the next day to get more equipment. They weren't allowed to work out there. We just, he didn't know enough about the disease at the time. And I mean, it's, it's always all the way to the end of the year. We didn't know enough about it. So um, I would go in probably three days a week, just do a few things, kind of look and say, hey, if we start here, we're ready to go. Uh, if we're going to start in Oakland, not knowing it wouldn't be till July, uh, we've got to ship this stuff up. So we've got to pack a lot of the stuff we might not need right away. So it was just up in the air, up in the air, not knowing what was going to go on. And, and then it happened to be the hottest May and the hottest June ever in Arizona history. I think there were 20 days in June that were over 110 uh, and some 20 days over 100 in the month of May, which were record shattering. So it was like every day, not every day, but it would go in every once in a while. I got to the point where if I played golf, I teed off at 6.15 in the morning. It was so warm. But uh, uh, continue to go to the ballpark and get ready. We finally got the word that a couple of clubs were shipping their stuff up. Communication with Dave Force was outstanding. We'd talk every other day or so. What do you know? What's happening? People are calling us all the time. Players are calling us. They're not getting informed properly from the PA. So uh, finally get the word we're going to do a summer camp in Oakland. And we got to separate the guys. We're going to do we're going to try to use the Raider locker room. We didn't have permission at the time yet, but we ended up getting it. Came in, took a couple of days to pack everything up, finish it up, get two huge trucks to truck it all up to Oakland. And we started in uh, July uh, with the uh, summer camp and had some uh, 45, 50 people in there, separated Raider locker room. We went from the smallest home locker room to the largest, and we put lockers in the middle. We had all these special rules. I mean, food, food was all to go. Guys couldn't eat in the clubhouse. We had... Everybody had their own chair. Their chair was marked. We didn't know about the touch thing yet. Could you get it by touching something, touching somebody, whatever? So, uh, you know, so much of it was up in the air. We had to be very careful. Our flights, uh, we had most, we had hotel meals, the first meal in a hotel on the road. So guys didn't go out. To, I mean, they could leave the hotel just to go get fresh air, but they weren't supposed to uh, gather in mass or go to restaurants or whatever. So, I mean, it was... It was obviously something like we've never experienced before, believe me. And hopefully nobody ever does again. How did you feel through all this just for yourself personally, Boost? You you, know, you mentioned that, you know, because of your age and people, there's certain uh, sectors of the population that they felt were a little more at risk than others. And those of us that are over the age of 60 were in that category. Uh, how, how did you feel just about trying to day by day live around this virus and find the best way to ensure your safety and ensure the safety of your family? Well, you know, being high risk at the time because of my age, I'm a tiny bit overweight um, and uh, other health factors. Uh, I was at risk just like so many people were. We just, you had to be careful. You had to wear your mask everywhere. Uh, a little pub in Scottsdale that I go to, a lot of baseball fans in there. We all sit around and talk baseball. We couldn't do that. 
So we found an outdoor spot. We could always bring chairs underneath these trees right next to the canal and space ourselves out and have a couple of beers and a cigar that way. So that was a big change. Um, it, 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 I say it was scary because people we knew were coming down with it. And I personally didn't know anybody that was real bad with it until I talked to Art Howe. And Art Howe had it real bad. It took months for him to get his taste back. And he lost so much weight because nothing tasted good to him. Everything tasted like mush. Uh, so I've had other friends that had some of the same problems. Unfortunately, knock on wood, I didn't know anybody that passed, but it, it, it was real scary. It, it was, and um, uh, we just had to take care. You had to watch your P's and Q's and uh, don't go wild like some areas of the country were, and it was spread worse there. Arizona was as bad as it was for a lot, a lot of places. Losing the human connection, you know, just that chance to, like you said, congregate as, as family and friends and you know, celebrate a day or, or celebrate uh, an anniversary and unable to do that in person or certainly in the, in the most difficult of circumstances, if somebody in your family had fallen ill, you didn't have access to them in, in hospitals. And unfortunately, thousands of people uh, who lost their lives because of the virus did so without the comfort of their family around them. I, with, with all that that we've gone through watching this take place, it's so heartbreaking and just thinking about like you mentioned, we're not there yet. We've certainly made a lot of progress, but hopefully the, uh, the sense is that there is some lesson learned that we all can find a way to come together to move to the next step. And while the new normal is never going to be like the normal we had, at least have some semblance of, of that human connection again on a regular basis. Let's hope so. Uh, I mean, I don't understand why people don't get vaccinated, but that's their own choice. It just proves, though, that most of the people in the hospitals these days for COVID are not vaccinated. And I've heard from a couple of people that have come down with it after vaccinations and they were told that they might have died if they hadn't uh, had been vaccinated, even though they came down with it after. And it's kind of a freak thing to come down with it after. But you still have to watch yourself. Be very careful. I don't want to end on that note, Boos. I want to end, end on a positive note and think there's two episodes left. And it's going to be hard to cram 54 years of, of memories with you. But I'm, I'm really excited about the next two episodes, not necessarily focusing on a season, but different, just different things that have, that, that have happened over the years. You touched on some of them. I'd like to expand on some of those, you know, touches with people and uh, memories with players. And, of course, uh, some, the one player that you've never met as, as an athletic, which is saying an awful lot of 54 years. We'll leave that where, where that stands. But uh, I'm anxious to have a smile. And, you know, we're closer to the celebration of Steve Usinich at the Coliseum of, of 54 years with the organization. That's on the final regular season Sunday with the Astros. Are you getting nervous yet, Boos, about, you know, being out there on the field and having a speech and, and getting a chance to get your much-deserved uh, adulation from uh, the clubhouse and from the fans of the Coliseum? Just an ordinary person getting an extraordinary opportunity. That's my mantra. Um, I'm not so much nervous. I'm just... This is, it's becoming overwhelming. And here I am, I'm just a sock and jock man, but it's becoming overwhelming. It's going to be a lot of fun, Boost. Thanks for episode 16. Two more to go. All right. Thanks, Vinny. Steve Boostinich, memories with Boost, 54 years with the Athletics, with two more episodes to go. Steve, the longtime equipment manager, 54 years with the organization. Every Thursday on Ace Total Access on AceCast, and always the entire interview at athletics.com slash AceCast. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics.